Hello, and welcome to Christian Life Issues for today, podcast series. For a couple of weeks now, we've been dealing with the matter of developing your family God's way. We're taking our material from a book that I wrote a few years ago, which was called Your Family God's Way, with the subtitle being Developing and Sustaining Relationships in the Home. It's published by PR Publishers, Presbyterian and Reformed Publishers. And this is Wayne Mack, the podcast speaker. We've uh, thus far talked about the maximum husband and father in the home and what it takes to become that maximum husband and father. And then in our last podcast, we talked about the mother and the wife in God's family. And we talked about how to become that fruitful vine kind of wife, which is described in Psalm 128. Actually, the whole series is taken from Psalm 128, which tells us about the maximum husband and father, and then the maximum wife and mother. And today we come to the third part, all of them based upon Psalm 128. Uh, the overall title for today's podcast is How to Grow Olive Plants, or Insights into Parent-Child Relationships. And all of this is found in Psalm 128. I begin by asking a question. If you were asked to describe parent-child relations in God's kind of family, what word picture would you use? Or better still, what word picture do you think God would use? We don't need to speculate on this matter. Because in Psalm 128, which is the family song, we have a description of God's parent-child relations in his kind of family. God says, your children shall be like olive plants around your table. That's Psalm 128, verse 3. A commitment to the concepts embedded in these words will go a long way in helping your family to function effectively. Conversely, serious parent-child difficulties stem from a misunderstanding or neglect of the truths captured by this phrase. Now, I begin with an illustration of Harry and Mary Brown, which are really pseudonyms for these people. They were counselees of mine, and I'm not going to use their specific names, but... I'll call them Harry and Mary Brown. And I say that they had a daughter by the name of Susan, who also, that name is a pseudonym, and are living examples of what happens when the olive plant concept of Psalm 128 is ignored. When these people sought counseling, they were experiencing major family dysfunction. At one time, all of them had professed faith in Jesus Christ, but 14-year-old Susan no longer called herself a Christian. She said, if being a Christian will make me like my mother, it's the last thing I want. Susan despised her mother and had no interest in the Christ 
she thought her mother represented. She avoided contact with her mother, also avoided communication as much as possible. Susan's attitude toward her father, however, was much the opposite. She generally showed him respect and shared freely what she was going on in her life with her father. She was willing to listen to him and took his suggestions seriously. Susan seemed to admire her father for the way he withstood abuse from her mother. At the same time, she pitied him for his unwillingness or inability to stand up to such mistreatment. I don't know, she said, how or why he takes it. As counseling progressed and more data was secured, it became evident that father-daughter coalition had developed when Susan was very young. For years, Mary Brown was considered the common enemy for at least an outsider, or, or at least an outsider. Both her husband and daughter, Harry, took at his daughter for strokes and sympathy to justify her attitudes, Susan did, that is, and he wanted to justify her attitudes and reactions toward her mother. Together, they made quite a team. As might be expected, this coalition between father and daughter proved a major source of frustration and antagonism for Mary. It appeared that her daughter was more interested in provoking her than pleasing her. Mary was also convinced that Harry was too loose with Susan. He's ruining her by his permissiveness, she said. He doesn't really know what's going on in her life. All the data seemed to indicate that Susan was not an overtly bad girl in the popular sense. She was not into drugs or sexual immorality. In her dealings with people, she was not nasty, hardened, or resentful. With everyone except her mother, she was polite, respectful, and somewhat receptive and cooperative. That was my experience with her as her counselor as well. But Susan saw only two ways to resolve their family problems. Either she and her father would live together or she would leave her mother alone. She was certain that she and her mother could never live peaceably in the same house. Several times in an attempt to relieve tensions, she had stayed for a few days with a friend without her parents' consent or knowledge. On at least two other occasions, Harry had arranged for her to stay with a Christian family until things cooled down. At times, Harry himself would say, I can't take it anymore. Maybe the only solution is for me to take Susan and move away from Mary. 
And just as often, Mary would say, if Harry doesn't change, I can't promise what I might do. He'd better start being more of a leader, or he may be sorry. In midst of all this, the Browns were all nice people in many ways. Individually, they were likable, honest, sincere, and even generous. They attended church regularly and were involved in Bible study groups. They did what Christians are supposed to do, at least in part. Yet when it came to family relations, they had never paid much attention to what God had to say in the Bible. On many issues, they simply did what came naturally rather than what came biblically. Harry had his ideas of what was right for Susan, and Mary had hers. Unfortunately, their ideas clashed. When they did study scripture together, each would use the opportunity to prove his or her own point. Instead of coming to the scripture to be taught, reproved, corrected, and trained in righteousness, as 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says we should do when we come to the scripture, they didn't come to be taught, reproved, or corrected, or trained. They came looking for verses that would justify the positions they had already taken. As a result, the Browns were a house divided, destroying each other by their selfishness. They would never be blessed as a family, the kind of which Psalm 128 speaks, until they were willing to bow humbly before God's word as the standard for a family living. They were failing as a family because Neither Harry nor Mary had clearly understood or implemented a biblical view of parent-child relations. Understood or implemented a biblical view of parent-child relationships was certainly not part of their modus operandi, the way they operated. They certainly didn't have a family in which they were implementing and operating according to the parent-child relations found in Psalm 128. Well, let's make sure that we understand what was going on and what should have been happening in the home with Mary and with her husband and with Susan. I think it's trustworthy and noteworthy to note that when God inspired the psalmist to write this family song, Psalm 128, the family included children. To me, this seems to indicate that it's usually God's will for families to have children. This implication is explicitly taught, or at least implied, in a number of other passages of Scripture. In Genesis... God gives clear teaching about this in his instructions to Adam and Eve. He said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi challenges the usual casual view of 
marriage that people had in his day by reminding them that it was God's will that they were to be joined together and become one flesh, and then that as one flesh they were to have children. The Bible goes on to say that one of the reasons for which God ordained marriage was that a godly offspring might be raised. That's Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. The New Testament teaches the same thing as we find in Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 16. It teaches us that God wants the younger widows, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 14, to marry and to bear children. In another place, God states that the young woman, women are to be encouraged or taught to love their husbands and their children. That's Titus chapter 2 and verse 4. This statement assumes that most of the younger women will marry and will have children. For all these reasons, whenever couples say they don't want children, I commend them for their honesty, but also urge them to evaluate their reasons for not wanting children. When considering whether or not to have children, the Christian couple should ask, Lord, what do you want us to do? Scripture seems to indicate that unless there are good physical or spiritual reasons for not having children, God wants the Christian couples to produce and raise godly offspring. Having said that, I hasten to add that I don't believe that people should be coerced into conceiving children. People who are pushed into childbearing are not likely to make good parents. The damage can be devastating. And so it was to the Brown family. At the time of her marriage, Mary Brown was involved in a rewarding career. She enjoyed her work and was good at it. Besides this, the thought of parenthood with all its responsibilities left her feeling insecure and inadequate. The fact was that Mary really didn't want to have children. Harry had different ideas. He asked and begged and tried to send Mary on a guilt trip so that she would be willing to have children. Well, she didn't want children because she felt insecure and inadequate. The fact was that Mary didn't really want to have children at all. Harry, as I said, had different ideas. He used every means of persuasion he knew to get Mary to agree to have children. After a long time of not having children, Mary reluctantly conceded. Soon Susan was conceived. Mary was pregnant, but she didn't like it. She resented Harry and eventually got pregnant, but she didn't expect that after having Susan, her life would change. 
On top of that, she experienced guilt because she knew that her attitude toward Susan and Harry was sinful. Mary was between a rock and a hard place. She knew she should deal with her sinful resentment. She didn't really want to give that resentment up because it was her way of punishing Harry for what he had done to her. Unwilling to grant Harry complete forgiveness, she chose to hang on to her resentment. Mary had the child, but only because she was forced into it. And that laid the groundwork for the family's tremendous problems. Mary and Harry were both wrong in their approach to having children. Her main concern was not what God wanted, but what she wanted. His main concern was not God's desires, but his own aspirations. And he was determined to see his desire fulfilled, even if he had to manipulate Mary until she gave superficial consent. She may have acquiesced on the outside, but she was rebelling on the inside. Her life is a tragic illustration of the fact that people should not be coerced into parenting. Those who have unbiblical reasons for not wanting children need to deal with the root of their problem. With honesty, they should identify and resolve the unbiblical reasons for their aversion. A sinful heart must be faced and resolved and the issues of that sinful heart. Christ's forgiveness and help for internal change must be sought. God's perspective on children must be understood and believed. As I write these words, I'm aware that some people may be very godly people and yet not have children, perhaps for some very good spiritual and God-honoring reasons. Perhaps you've been gifted and called to a particular kind of ministry that would preclude fulfilling the responsibilities of biblical parenting. Possibly you are temporarily in a situation that would make it very difficult on the children if you had them. It could be that you're postponing parenthood uncertain of personal or interpersonal problems that as to whether or not they could be cleared up. They recognize there are personal and interpersonal problems, but they're not sure that they can be cleared up. They're not that concerned at that point, and they say they are, but they're really not, about what's best for the children and for the kingdom of God. They don't see the fact that God in, indicates that Christian husbands and wives should have children, and it should be for kingdom of God reasons. And so they have major factors in their decision making about having children that need to be dealt with. It may also be that some of these people are physically unable to have children. They may want to, but can't. Please don't allow yourself to descend into despair by focusing on what cannot be. 
Rather, seek God's help to avail yourself of the opportunities you do have to nurture children in godly ways in your larger family, the church. You see that in Mark chapter 3, verse 35, and 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Ask God to show you how and with whom you can do your part in raising a godly offspring for him. Well, there's a sense in which every Christian couple can have children. All married Christians should be involved in some kind of parenting. And that's exciting because according to the family song, Psalm 128, parenting is a privilege. The statement about children and family song, Psalm 128 and verse 3, is followed by an exclamation concerning the blessedness of parenting. That's found in Psalm 128 and verse 4. In a similar vein, concerning the blessedness of parenting, a previous psalm asserts that children are a gift from the Lord and that the person whose quiver is full of them is a blessed individual. That's Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. And I would encourage you to look that up and to read it and try to understand what it's saying. By giving you children, Almighty God has given you one of the most important, exalted, rewarding, challenging opportunities a human being could have for God. He has commissioned you to labor with him in building a life through which he may be glorified and great good may be accomplished for other people. As a parent, yours is the challenge of bringing a person up to be a fruitful disciple of Jesus Christ. In the words of Psalm 128, you can play a major role in growing children who are like luxurious, prolific, and olive plants. Well, Mary and Harry Brown needed this perspective on parenting. Their vision was too limited. Their attitude was really ungodly. They failed to perceive how their lives and relationship were impacting negatively on another human being, Susan. Both of them lacked the big picture of what God's way of parenting involves in terms of its privileges, responsibilities, and methods. Both of them were too selfish, too nearsighted, too man-centered in their parental endeavors. Neither of them had a clear understanding of the implications of the olive plant posture and picture that God uses in Psalm 128 to describe parent-child's relationships. Well, what exactly does the olive plant picture mean? What does it suggest about parent-child relations? How can an understanding of this simile, this word picture, help you to avoid the mistakes that Harry and Mary Brown were making? Well, for one thing, the psalmist simile implies that you should have a high regard for your children. One author tells us that the olive tree, 
was the most important tree in Palestine. It tells us that the olive tree in one passage is depicted as the king of the trees. That's Judges chapter 9, verses 8 and 9. Another reference dignifies this olive branch concept by comparing God's people to the olive tree planted by God. That's Romans chapter 11, verse 17. Other portions of Scripture exalt this olive plant idea of parenting by specifically prescribing that the oil of the olive tree and only that oil was to be used to consecrate the priests and the lamps in the tabernacle where people worshipped. That's Exodus chapter 27, verse 20, and Exodus chapter 30, verses 32 and 33. In other words, the psalmist, by using this olive plant concept, was describing children in a way that emphasized how valuable and precious they were. Jesus emphasized it also. He knew all about children. He knew that they were born sinners and therefore needed to be regenerated and redeemed. That's found in Psalm 51, verses 3 through 5, where you have the Bible's description of children. In Psalm 58, and verse 3, another description of the way children come into the world with a need to be regenerated and redeemed. He was fully aware that they needed to be changed by God's grace. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Jesus had no unrealistic ideas about their perfection or innocence. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 15 makes that clear. Yet he evidenced at the same time a high regard for them. At times he used children as illustrations of spiritual truth, as in Matthew chapter 18 verses 1 through 10. He emphasized the seriousness of mistreating them. And he sternly rebuked his disciples for trying to prevent certain parents from bringing their children to Jesus. That's Mark chapter 10, verses 13 and 14. Calmly yet forcefully, he said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then having done that, he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and the Bible says he blessed them in Mark chapter 10, verses 14 through 16. Like Jesus, you must be realistic in your attitude toward your children. You must realize that your children have the potential for great wickedness as described in Psalm 51, verse 5, and Psalm 58, verse 3. They are born sinners and must be regenerated by God's Holy Spirit and redeemed by God's grace. Your children need God's forgiveness for their sins. They need His help to become truly worthwhile, God-honoring, olive-plant persons. Without Him, they cannot bear fruit for God. 
as is described in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. However, viewing your children biblically has another side to it as well. Biblical realism also requires that you see your children as persons of great value and worth. Despite their needs and deficiencies, what this means is that your children should be important to you and primarily because they are yours, yes, but more than that, because they are persons made in God's image and are God's gifts to you. That you're thinking the Bible would have us No, be gripped by the realization that each of our children are destined to live forever. Recall that he or she, our children, have the potential to do immense good or evil. Understand that by God's grace, your child has great potential to become a thriving olive plant, according to Psalm 128. In doing research on the olive plant, I was interested to note to the numerous ways, many ways, in which the olive plant and its fruit were used. Olives and olive oil were used for food, Deuteronomy 24 and verse 20. They were used for illumination in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 2 and for consecrating religious workers in Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 to 33. Olive oil was also used for cosmetic purposes in Leviticus chapter 24 and verse 2, and for consecrating religious workers, as we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and verse 20. Olive oil was used to illuminate and consecrate the religious workers and it was used for cosmetic purposes as in Ruth chapter 3 and verse 3. It was also used for medicinal and hygienic functions as in Luke chapter 10 and verse 34. It was used for religious ceremonies as in Genesis chapter 28 and verse 18 and even as a commodity of exchange. Instead of money, they used olive oil sometimes, as in 1 Kings chapter 5 and verse 11, and Luke chapter 16 and verse 6. In addition, the olive tree and its fruit are symbols of joy, prosperity, and peace. Isaiah chapter 61 and verse 3, and Psalm 45 and verse 7. The tree itself was noted for its beauty, as is found in Jeremiah chapter 11, verse 16, and Hosea chapter 14, and verse 6. Its wood was valuable for fuel and even construction purposes, as found in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 23, and verses 31 to 33. And when the olive crop failed, it was considered to be a national tragedy as in Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 17. What does all this indicate about the way you should regard children? It suggests that you should have high expectations for them. 
Make sure your expectations are in keeping with their personal gifting and the stage of development, but don't underestimate their God-given capabilities. Encourage them to believe that. In keeping with their gifting and maturity level, they can make a tremendous contribution. They can make contributions even as children and then later on as well. To be sure, olive plants need careful attention to bear fruit. The soil around them must frequently be plowed. They need water and fertilizer. They thrive best in warm and sunny situations. So learn from this the importance of giving children diligent care. Do your utmost to bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord as instructed in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4. Be, be diligent to teach them God's word in structured and spontaneous situations. Be genuinely and attractively spiritual in your lifestyle. Hide God's word in your heart. Make your entire life a living epistle to your children about what it means to be a Christian and to live for God. Provide an environment that is conducive to the development of godly character and conduct. Be involved in a church. Know the Bible. Teach your children the Bible. Teach them spiritual concepts. Have family devotions with them. And help bring them up in an environment where the development of godly character and conduct will be encouraged. Make yourself and your home a fun place to be. Seek to eliminate from yourself and your home anything that would inhibit fruitfulness. At the same time, don't try to bear fruit for your children. The olive tree must bear its own fruit. Teach them to accept that responsibility to be fruitful in and of themselves. Don't be guilty of excessive pushing or shoving. Exude realistic optimism. Develop the hopeful and appropriate expectation that they will be productive. I'm intrigued that the family song states that our children are to be like olive plants, not branches, but plants. A plant has an independent existence. A branch is simply a part of the tree. This points to the fact that we are to respect the individuality of our children. God didn't intend for them to be a carbon copy of us. Let your children have ideas that are different from your own, unless they are horribly unbiblical. Don't be threatened by differences of opinion. Rather, help your children to think through issues for themselves. Teach them to think, to evaluate, and to examine on their own. Of course, you are to stand firmly, calmly, and intelligently on issues where you have a thus saith the Lord, where the Bible is very clear. However, beware of getting involved in unnecessary power struggles. Don't create issues where there's no need to 
be themselves or any freedom to be themselves. Within the parameters of Scripture, give your children freedom to be themselves. In your parenting, provide fences, not straitjackets. Establish biblical limits and then train your children to obey those biblical limits. In their earliest years, the fences will need to be much more restrictive and clearly delineated. You'll be more involved in decision-making, determining specific policies, and helping your children to fulfill certain responsibilities. In discerning what is right and wrong, they will need help. But even in the earliest years, make sure that you give your children room to maneuver for themselves. Restrain yourself from doing for them what they can and should do for themselves. Provide the tools, the encouragement, the example, and the structure for them to produce their own fruit. As they mature, the fences can be expanded so that your children assume more and more responsibility for their own lives. What you want to develop is inner motivation and self-control. The ability to think, to choose, to live biblically without the need for excessive external motivation or control. Your goal is to help your children to grow up to be independently dependent on Christ and his word. You want them to be plants within a large olive orchard. That's the independent part. They'll need to know how to relate to other people in a giving and receiving relationship. Unlike some olive trees that are isolated out in the desert, they're to be like olive plants around your table, associated with you, and in some ways open to helping you, as well as receiving your help. Having said that, the fact remains that your children are to be plants, not branches. Ultimately, you should want to point them away from yourself to Christ as the one upon whom they are to be dependent. You want them to experience freedom for which Christ has set them free, as we're told in Galatians chapter 5. You will desire them to have a mature relationship, not a dependency relationship with you. You'll believe that by God's grace, your children can and must bear fruit on their own.